0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and
1: what you need to do.
2: Morning, Nina. Whole new format,
0: hey? I know, how exciting! We've got
2: a tag as we go in and out of the room. (laughs) And when yeah. we do it between days, I have to wear the same black t-shirt. Frightening.
0: I know. Uh, <laughs> you should smell it never. <laughs> but,
2: but look, really exciting day today, because we're dealing with a whole range of things. But principally with Nina, we're dealing with safety. Nina and I have been out across Australia and we'll be continuing to <laughs> the next few weeks dealing with psychological hazards and the changes around sexual harassment and gender equality. Yeah. That's been exciting training, hasn't it? It's been great yeah. response to people. Uh, and we're off doing mock courts now, which is always the end of the year to remind people. But can I just say around the training of gender equality and sexual discrimination, although the legislation is not coming in until next year, this is a good time to be doing because we're running towards Christmas parties.
0: Yeah, and they're going to expect you to have things in place before, not after.
2: All right. Let's go over to Matt now for the first part <laughs> bit, okay? Yes. Yeah. See you soon.
3: Matt, yes. welcome to the couch. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. Teleported here. Yeah, I the, teleported here. The him. magic of TV.
2: Secure Jobs, they're mm-hmm, at it again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So since we last spoke to you, Secure Jobs has passed the House of Reps. Passed the House. With the Pocock Amendments. The Pocock Amendments. Yeah.
3: actually described. Yeah, the
2: Burke, Burke um, managed to move 153 of his own amendments to his own legislation.
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Interesting character. That's it's a lot.
2: Yeah. Driving the wedge between Lambie and Pocock. That's right. Hoping that Pocock will take the whole package of secure mm. jobs through. I think the chances are almost zero of that happening, but that's yep. a discussion for a later date. We'll know yep. in
3: about two weeks' time. That's right.
2: But, Matt, there have been a number of changes, mm. particularly around the multiple employer enterprise agreement. What are
3: they? Yeah, that's where we're seeing most of the changes and probably what we're going to see carved out, Andrew. Um, but a couple of key ones, a six-month grace period um, after your enterprise agreement expires, if you have a single one, before you can be roped in. Uh, another, if you agree with the union before yours expires, then you can't be roped in. A lot of these changes around really preventing employers from getting roped in, the exclusion of the building and construction industry what a great thing as a is. whole, it's, it's a so big that's, that's
2: the seeker amendment. That's, yeah. We're not going to deal with the CFMU building instructional group at all. No. But all of this is to build some form of confidence into the fact that you won't be roped in. Yeah. the typically is... At every stage, it allows the union a new gun to point at your head, That's which says, like well, you know, we'll wait for six months, yeah. or you either agree with us mm. or we rope you in. Yeah, It's not good stuff, and I think Bacock's no. going to struggle with it. I think he will. Other one was flexible arrangements, Matt. There was it a was. change there. Good change, I thought. Yeah, I
3: think so. Just to clarify that the Fair Work Commission can't, when they're using these new powers, to order a flexible working arrangement can't order an employer to do something that would be otherwise prohibited by an award or an enterprise agreement. So, okay. that was one of the big areas of confusion. It's good to know now that, look, they're not going to apply it differently than the rules you already have. So, now we're just waiting until the Senate get hold of it.
2: Mm. It's up there with respect at work. Yep. Respect at work should get through, I think, without further think so. amendment. There's so, strong okay. consensus to go through with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Provisions around protection of women that exist in the secure jobs, I think, will flow through. Yep. So will the contractor provisions, yep. dumb as they are. Mm-hmm. But I think we're going to see a few hurdles hit when it comes to multiple employer
3: agreements. Yeah, agreed, Andrew. Yeah, that's going to be the long well, Let's, let's jump to the next one, mate. Mm-hmm. Let's do it.
2: Really interesting. We've spent a number of years where people feel that if you can provide someone with a suitable or similar alternative mm-hmm. of employment, then... You don't have to pay the redundancy payment. That's never yeah. been right. It's ever since the most recent no. amendment of the Fair Work Act, that says You must apply to the Fair Work Commission. Mm-hmm. But the McLeod cases is an interesting case. But mm. It's really given us some clarity around that, hasn't it? Matt?
3: It has, Andrew. And what it's really emphasised here is if you want the benefit of provision to not have to pay the redundancy pay, simply taking passive steps to obtain alternative employment for the employees that you're making redundant uh, is no longer really hey, Look acceptable. at Chandler Mcleod. look what they did and just yeah, explain that. That's right. So, a labour hire provider here loses the contract on a particular site, a new provider comes in, gets that contract, and in that process, the employer, the original lab hire employer says, oh well look, you know, we've got all these employees, maybe you'd like to take them on. The steps that they take aren't very direct. They sort of notify their employees, oh look, there's this other employer coming in, you might get a job. They send them another email that's got a list of the job. Openings on the other new employer's website, and there's some sort of very tenuous phone calls that occur. But it's passive. Isn't it? It's so passive, Andrew. Nothing documented. No promises in writing. Nothing that is of any sort of obligation on the new employer to offer new employment. And then we to get these the new employees. test promulgated, which is the procurement test. The procurement it? test. Yeah. So you've got to be able to demonstrate that you've taken active steps and obtained an agreement to procure that work, not simply enough to say it's out there, but you as the employer as taking steps with the potential new employer to get work. So it's a tripartite parties thing. It it's is. It's not two. No.
2: You've got to have an agreement that between old employer, new employer yep. and employees, yes. and it must be documented and mm. demonstrated that you're the person, mm. old employer, who yep. procured that outcome mm. to waive it. So that's it, mate, and I'll tell you what, Interesting times ahead. I've got Kim next talking about similar Yeah, stuff, absolutely. The importance
3: of the infrastructure. Oh, uh, and documentation, throwing to Kim. We well, you can take that to the back. G'day, Kim.
2: How are you? Hi, Andrew. I'm good. Well, we've got some interesting cases today. What we're going to look at is the importance of infrastructure mm. when we're dealing with managing injuries. We're going to look at it in terms of termination for people who are dishonest about it. Yep. We're going to look at it, the possibility of claims being brought. But let's start off with SONS the case. Okay. Kim, you know all about Yarra Trams and SONS. Tell us just two or three of the key facts.
1: Okay, so tram driver had a stroke at work, had a period of time off work. When he was coming back to work, they had him assessed by a doctor for fitness for duty, but he failed to disclose that he'd had a stroke under their legislation or safety standards. Anyone who'd had a stroke isn't fit for work for three months, and he failed to disclose to the doctors that He'd had a stroke, which meant that they gave a declaration that he was fit for work when he actually wasn't.
2: And as a result of that, his employment was terminated?
1: Yeah, because he was dishonest. He, he didn't make honest disclosure about the nature of his condition. He knew about the safety standards, knew that he was in breach of them. Yep. And then when they found out that he'd made a false disclosure to the doctors and they investigated that aspect of it, he wasn't truthful in the investigation.
2: Okay, so what I want you to see in all of this is, and let's send it across from Zerubis and Mondelez, a very old case, mm. where Mondelez wanted to terminate an old confectioner called Zerubis. There was no paper infrastructure that identified what was the inherent requirements of the job. And when they went to court, they got the inherent requirements from four different people. They were all different. And what the judge said in the end, finding for Zerubis is, yeah, I don't doubt this man can't do the job, but I don't know if there's any reasonable adjustments. Mm. So really good juxtaposition. You've got a case here where there's absolute clarity, signs, yep. lies out, you've got yep. Zerubis, a guy who wasn't fit for the work but wins a case costing half a million dollars in legal fees mm. simply because the organisation failed to define what the inherent requirements of the job was. Yeah. And, look, that flows into our next case of Borg and This doesn't So tell us a little bit about Borg.
1: Oh, look, this is just a lady who exaggerated the extent of her incapacity to promote her serious injury application.
2: So a serious injury application is a Victorian phenomenon. Yeah. And before you can bring a common law claim, you've got to prove you have a level of liability disability. Disability, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so she's lied to get herself over the limit. Yep. Tell us what happened.
1: Her application got dismissed because the judge was aware that she was exaggerating the level of her disability. But
2: they found that out because the evidence led. They got some CCTV of her wandering around which showed disability described as unlikely. They looked at her social media site and saw she was undertaking activities she said she couldn't do. Yeah. And then she had all these overseas trips and so... Isn't this a good warning again? Mm-hmm. What do you do when you think someone's wrong? Well, the first thing is you go to what is the job description yeah. and you look at the objective evidence of her capacity or his capacity to do it. Now, that can be shown, and DP world was where everyone gossiped about a bloke on workers' compensation yeah. couldn't do a job. Yeah. So they appoint an investigator, the investigator found him working on a car, mm-hmm. and they terminated him saying he wasn't fit for the in requirements.
1: And they
2: lost. And they lost because the medical evidence was, He wasn't fit to do his job, Mm. and it's a different issue about the car. He wasn't fit to do the job. So I want us to come home to this very simple issue that Kim and I keep coming to time and time again. The first place you go is the job description that must be accurate for the job that's being done. If you're worried someone's not telling the truth, collect the easy-to-gather evidence to tell you whether it's gossip or whether there's support to suggest someone's being dishonest. Mm. Dishonesty in any form of legislation is fundamental to the success in that legislation. Yeah. If you lie about a serious injury, you won't get up. If you lie in workers' compensation, it won't be accepted. Yeah. If you lie for Fair Work Act, it's serious misconduct and your employment will be terminated. But if you don't have the reliable evidence... You can't do any of it. You're making it up yourself. That's right. Thanks,
1: Kim. Thank you. So
2: let's get into the new Queensland code that's come through. So they have both regulations and code in Queensland.
0: Both come into effect first of April. Can I just
2: say this is typical Queensland stuff, (laughs) documentation, documentation, documentation. It is the only code that sets out what controls look like and those controls are document-rich, aren't they?
0: Yeah, it's really based about what checklist you can fill out, what like many many things all of their case studies are based around documentation which is going to be quite problematic Andrew because yeah. as we know with safety too much documentation can be a problem because it encourages compliance over looking at the underlying issues and tick box exercise
2: yeah, this is just I'm sorry this is what happens in Queensland mm-hmm. is safety law gets lost on the idea of a documentary safe process and I think this code is dangerous I don't think it's helpful
0: yeah, I think it's going to ignore, really, the whole point, which is to monitor people. Just because you tick off that they're okay is not going to protect you.
2: But look, the upside is positive duty is back in there to avoid yep. psychological hazards. So now throughout four states and territories, there are codes or regulations that govern this yep. and impose this obligation to actually prevent psychological hazards. Look, let's move on, okay, because we've got our next favourite case, which is the Dick Stone case, and this is about an employer who never learns a lesson, is it?
0: Literally. We've spoken at length about this case before, so it was meat processor, wholesaler, who was having overseas employees work over 50 hours a week, and they said that was reasonable.
2: With no choice.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And look, court absolutely tore them apart. Despite all of that, at the centre, let's say children apart under section
2: 62 because it simply was unreasonable, unreasonable (laughs) expectation of the people to work.
1: Okay, yeah,
0: and they hadn't considered the health risk at all. They worked in an area with knives and heavy machinery, so obviously fatigue was a huge risk, but they don't
2: agree. So, when they found the problem out, what did they do?
0: They gave everyone sheets to fill out whether they wanted to work 38 hours or 50 hours. Without telling them what the risks were, so
2: they could make an yeah. informed decision. And as a result, of that the, the court fined them over ninety thousand. Yeah, it was
0: ninety-three thousand dollars. So can I just say, oh, fifty hours' you. work
2: is not an unusual work and in our business. It's not unusual. But understanding the risk that comes with it and being clear to people about how that risk is being managed is what this case is about. Yeah, you need to If do you don't do that, assignment. I'm afraid it's all over. Yeah. So let's jump to really the meat and potatoes of today, which is <laughs> looking at the regulators, the safety regulators, targeted directors. I think, Nina, it's fair to say that if we take COVID out of it when the regulators went into hibernation and just dealt with COVID, what we saw since 2018 was 12 to 14 cases of reckless endangerment and one of industrial manslaughter in the years prior to that and the whole history of safety legislation, only orbit drilling had occurred before.
1: It's a
0: massive increase.
2: And now we've seen this greater focus on the expectations of directors who... And not as operational. So, all the past cases we're dealing with are operational directors. Our people. As yeah, well, they're yeah. people who actually manage the business yep. and are deeply involved. And we're seeing now the focus on those ones who are a little more supine and not involved in day to day operations, but ought to know the high level risks that are occurring.
1: Yeah.
2: So, if we go back to the old cases, the cases like Carter, which was the woman in woman lifting a car on a forklift. Yep. We go back to... Like
0: Jackson.
2: St. Jackson. Yeah. The case. <laughs> I say St. Carter for, but Jackson. <laughs> we go back to all those cases. There's been some really significant jail sentences handed out. Yeah.
1: Even in auto, Brisbane Auto
2: Recyclers, a $3 million fine. Yeah,
1: and
0: 10 months imprisonment.
2: Yeah. yeah. These are significant fines, but the focus now is moving to directors generally and that's why we're talking about today because there is a recent case which is how long ago now it's it's only a few months ago that they've started the prosecution in victoria
0: yeah i think it's about maybe two months and we don't know the company because WorkSafe won't prosecute it but it's the first ever manslaughter prosecution against a business in victoria and also specifically against the director once again involving a forklift not surprising regulators are cracking down on heavy machinery.
2: And that's the truth. When we look at what has happened over the last four years, heavy machinery, the direction to use it, the system around it, faulty, over- years, Yeah, all those things have led to it. So if there is a high-level risk in your organisation, if you use trucks, forklifts and cranes, guaranteed if you fail to follow the codes that exist around it or the safety proper safety instructions, you will be prosecuted. Yeah. But we're also seeing two new cases that are coming through, not an industrial manslaughter sort of stage, but around psychological hazards, and that is the new attack of regulators. Yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about why is that happening?
0: Well, why is it happening now, as opposed to before? It's always been a focus, but I think today regulators are seeing, look, directors are becoming willfully blind to it. They're relying on things like insurance to say, look... If something happens, I'm protected, but that's just not the case. Yeah, and when
2: we talk about willfully blind, that's that's the sort of legal expression that Nina and I bandy about <laughs> a bit too much, actually. But what it means is that directors stay in their lane a bit. They yeah. come to their board too meeting. Much. They're not identifying what's required to, which is how are you managing the high-risk hazards that exist in the organisation. Yep. They're inclined to rely on safety specialists in the organisation. And, and it, not
0: read the safety reports as yeah. well. Does and some of those going? safety
2: reports are absolutely impenetrable, 100 pages of graphs which is also mm-hmm. nonsense. Oh. So the other part that Nina said, of course, is insurance is going in three states. It's gone. It's, yeah, it's gone. illegal to indemnify against New South
0: Wales, WA and Victoria.
2: It. And within the next two years, it will be illegal throughout all states and territories. So you won't be able to insure for the penalties. You were never able to insure for reckless endangerment and you were never yeah. obviously able to insure for being locked up because they not yeah. want to go there for you. <laughs> so when we look at those things, I guess let's look at, what you need to do, because that's the big issue for directors. Okay, Nina, this is our system that we talk about. And I think the biggest gap you see, so number one is a plan.
0: Yeah, make sure you have a safety plan. If you don't have one, then you're... And where's your
2: independent expertise that says the plan deals with the highest level of risk? I mean, if you're a director and you've got a safety practitioner telling you, have you any confidence that that safety practitioner has the operational skills to give you that information? So on a regular basis, once every couple of years at least, you must independently bring someone in. To
0: certify it. Yeah,
2: and say, look, these are the hazards. These are the high-level risks. This is the type of control you should be doing. Yeah. And then put it into a plan and budget the plan and give it resources. Because that is what reasonably Practical met requires.
0: Yeah, and actually implement the plan. The amount of times we see people say, "Yeah, look at my perfectly created plan," but no one's ever looked at it. Yeah, so there's no process. Away. Yeah. We don't no, find the yeah. policies
2: and procedures, or the safe operating procedures yeah, that execute no. it. We don't it find has it has to be
0: rolled out through the chains. Not, nor I mean. do
2: we actually see the acquisition of capital that's required. Yeah. It. So it stays at an administrative control. So implement the process.
0: I think what you said about budgeting is really correct. Like, a lot of times safety is considered as an afterthought, but you actually need to prove that you are, you know, spending the money to implement all the parts of the and plan.
2: And when Nina and I are doing prosecutions, which we've done about five or six to plea this year, yeah. every time the evidence we have to demonstrate is, okay, so this was a hazard.
1: Yep. This is this how is we
2: identified the risk. We did. This is the control. This is the resources we put behind it yeah. and the plan and process around it. It's exit. the best way
0: to mitigate any kind of prosecution.
2: And then, of course, as a director, unless you're satisfied, you have the plan and process, but the staff are competent at delivering yeah. it and do it safely, you're liable.
0: Yeah, they have to actually understand the plan because they're the ones on the ground floor. Obviously, as a director, you're not going to be everywhere at once, Yeah, and if you can't be competent that your staff are competent, then...
2: So there's one of your key reports yeah. that comes out is yeah. a demonstration that people are trained and competent in the plan and process. Without yeah. that, you have no diligence and protection.
0: Please keep records of training. Like, that is something that's so frustrating because you go through all that effort. If you don't have that record, how will you remember years from now what you did?
2: And the people who lead people must know what the plan is. They must know the processes. That's their toolkit. Mm. They must be satisfied that every person is competent in yep. that plan and process and you see how this whole thing integrates into a business plan because this won't work if the safety plan end. sits at the side yeah. after that how do you check it's happening Yeah. how do you do walkthroughs do you do inspections as an executive group or as a board particularly as a director where do you have your monitoring process that tells you there is integrity yeah if you don't have it it's not being reported to you don't have a system and last of all of course you must have a reporting system back against the plan that tells you the success, the gaps, the yeah. actions that need to so be So that you take. can review
0: it. Yeah. And if it needs to be changed, part of reasonable practical early means you need to change it. Well,
2: look, that's it If you isn't it? If you're, a director, <laughs> <That's simple. laughs> if you're a director, take this plan and test it out in your organisation. Yeah. That's our little gift for you today. All right. Okay, Nina, we've got the case study. It's a big one this week. I'm sorry. Yeah, you
0: got carried away. With I did get carried It
2: was after midnight. So let's go. You read.
0: Vicky worked as a drafts person in the engineering department of Big Build. She was a qualified engineer but chose to do drafting work because of her home responsibilities with kids and husband. She used the SkyCiv software to document the structural design created by engineers. Big Build were engaged by large builders and government to develop the engineering infrastructure for large entertainment buildings and shopping centres. They specialise in the Structural design for architecturally shaped roofing that was both safe against the worst weather conditions but attractive to look at. Big Build had undertaken a cost-cutting program since COVID, demanded people return to work, and bolstered their engineering team to deal with four new contracts they had successfully tendered for. In Vicky's team, there were three engineers and two draftspersons. Her counterpart drafter was the wife of the managing director her name was Sybil. Vicky lived in Craigieburn, had two young sons, both school-aged, and a husband who worked afternoon shifts, so she had to be at home on school days for pickups. Her flexible working arrangements had been approved but were not welcomed by her team leader, Jason. Jason was an equal shareholder with the other eight principal engineers and director. He and his two engineers in his team were working long hours to deliver two of the new projects, but the documentation process was holding them up. Sybil was not highly skilled and precious. Her husband, Dale was a difficult man and Jason knew better than to push back on Sybil's low productivity. Instead, he increasingly relied on Vicky. He liked her, trusted her and confided in her, his frustration with Sybil. Vicky explained to Jason that her younger son was starting to develop some behavioural issues and she thought it came from her inaccessibility and stress from work. It was now common for her to work over 55 hours a week. Her base pay under the award was $32 per hour and she was paid $42 per hour. Over a year, the over award payment had previously offset the hours she worked. It assumed an average working week of 45 hours per week. In June 2022, Jason explained to Vicky he will need her to undertake some of the admin work as they had made all PAs redundant. She said yes, but within days noticed some hair loss, her weight had been plummeting, and she felt stressed all the time. One night when she went to bed, she had what she thought was a heart attack. The ambulance came and she found out it was a panic attack. She saw her treating doctor the next day. She admitted she was losing interest in life and couldn't see a way out. She had trouble concentrating and was so often tearful when alone. The doctor suggested she take some leave and see a psychiatrist. She did neither but told Jason. Jason said, take care of yourself, but then detailed the mistakes she'd made and said they can't afford anymore. As Vicky left work two days later, she turned to talk to Sybil. Panic suddenly struck. She lost her balance and fell over the rail of the external stair, falling on her head and dying immediately. So dark,
2: oh, Andrew. Oh, no, so dark, so dark. I know it's dark, but it's hard to t- tell stories <laughs> where people die which aren't dark, is it? Gosh. So the first question is, was the allocation of work and method of Jason's leadership a psychological hazard? Yeah,
0: in so many levels. In so
2: many ways, isn't it? Yeah. You know, when you look at it, so leadership's one part, but the absence of reward.
0: Poor work design. She was over too much job demands.
2: I yeah, and demands. then giving her work which was beneath her.
0: Yeah. And not really listening to her when she was saying, "I need help." Yeah, it was kind of dismissing it. Like sometimes managers acknowledge but then dismiss. That's
2: also this causing is the Birkin Sun cool Any reasonable yeah. person at this stage would have gone, "Wow, um, there's a problem here. Yeah. There's a real, real problem here." Okay. So yes, there is definitely psychological hazards, and it's filled with those psychological hazards. Yes. And the common, a common law. Jason and Dale were on notice that this person had a problem and there was a need to intervene. So the next question is, Had Jason had spoken directly to Dale immediately after his discussion with Vicky, where she disclosed how unwell she was and said Sybil must take on a higher load, explaining Vicky's precarious mental health. Dale had said Jason needed to sort it out and not waste his time. Could both Jason and Dale be liable for industrial manslaughter? Now, I I just want to raise this. If Jason wasn't a director, there's absolutely... No way. If he isn't an officer, that he could be liable for industrial manslaughter. But Jason is a director. Okay, so he is an officer.
0: Jake, oh, because he's a yeah, share. That's right. Yeah. No, no,
2: no. He's also a director. He's oh, one of the eight. I now I forgot, I forgot that when we were chatting in the car on the way in. Said <laughs> <laughs> he was a
0: shareholder.
2: Is that and a director? No, okay, you have got to get back in the problem. All right, gee, I right. tell you Making what. Making up facts as you go along.
0: Gee, I think it's it is. Actually, <laughs>
2: in there. But besides that, and Dale, of course, is a director as well. He's the managing director.
0: But he hasn't. Been negligent with her, like in this question, he's raising it directly with Dale. So, isn't that doing something?
2: Yeah, it's not enough. Okay, so if we start at reckless endangerment, so let's build up the, the scale.
1: Yeah,
2: so they're definitely primary duty liability. Could yeah. they be reckless endangerment? They're aware of a serious risk to health and safety. Yeah. Yes, could it cause death or serious injury? Yes. Are they so indifferent
0: reckless to it? Indifferent, though. Yeah, no, no. But he like, indif- just talking about Jason, Dale definitely. Yeah. But Jason's not ignoring it. No, that's
2: the whole problem. And reckless endangerment, taking those acts doesn't get you out. You have to take the right act. Indifference is failing to act in an appropriate way. So a little bit of acting, a little bit of raising, it's not enough. <laughs> a bit of yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he's liable for reckless endangerment. The question is, Whether did Dale and Jason it. were grossly negligent to a criminal level? And I think it would be hard, to be perfectly honest. It's always,
0: yeah, it's always hard to meet that threshold for
2: Yeah, me. so I don't think that Dale would be, because I don't think Dale has the state of knowledge to be that negligent. He's dismissive and foolish, no doubt about it. He's recklessly endangered someone, no doubt about it. And Jason is trying. So yeah. when you see negligence at this level, that is the deliberate disregard. Probably the part that puts Jason at risk is when she tells him how bad he is, bad she is he then starts correcting her mistakes yeah. in front of her
0: says oh yeah i, I appreciate that but you're making these mistakes <laughs> yeah.
2: so he's on the verge but he wouldn't be charged okay so let's have a look at the next question
0: has big build got an underpayment issue and could dale and jason be prosecuted along with well, let's,
2: let's be really clear about this if unless you've got annualized salary under an award it's every payroll period is a potential breach so yeah. if you work 42 hours and you've paid enough to pay for 45, on those weeks there's no problems. But if every now and again you spike above it, yeah. for that pay period it is a breach and you are charged with each individual breach. Yeah. So that's the answer to one is there is definitely an underpayment, underpayment issue yeah. and there is now a gross underpayment issue which breaches the prosecutorial guidelines of the regulators because yeah. they say if you look over the yearly period and there is an underpayment, you will be prosecuted, okay, yeah. and you can't mitigate and go to a mediation and solve it. Their view is now you accept the plea yep. or they proceed.
0: And I think both of them actually could be prosecuted as well because it's, unlike safety law, it's not limited to officers. No,
2: no,
1: it's not.
0: So it just depends on their knowledge. So Jason definitely has knowledge about the excessive hours she's working, but whether he has direct knowledge of how much she's getting paid.
2: And remember, these are the 7-11 amendments that came yeah. to the Fair Work Act to deal with underpayments following the Seven Eleven 11 cases of franchises. But... Let's be clear about the test because this is a criminal liability. This is, this is not a quasi-criminal liability. This is a criminal liability for wage theft, and that's how this would be characterised. So the reputational damage to this business would be extraordinarily high for being named as a wage theft person. and Remember, through the restaurant industry, how damaging that was. Yeah. But the knowledge state is, for the managing director, a constructive knowledge because he leads the business. So he cannot escape it and Jason definitely cannot escape it because he has specific knowledge. So both of them would be up for very significant penalties for each breach along the way, mm. not just for the one total breach.
0: But they would round it up under the totality principle, wouldn't they? Well,
2: that, they'd use what's called in criminal law the totality principle, which is to work out what the total loss is. And do but but the difficulty with this is this, this is a criminal provision to prevent yeah. Repet- repetitive loss. So the yeah. totality principle would have a limited play in it. Mm. So you would find the aggregational number of it would be taken into consideration. These would be very, very significant fines. There would be back payment, and on top of that, there would be interest payments. So there would be three levels of fines that were involved in this. There would be the fine itself, there would be the interest that has to be paid with the back ba- yep. payment, and I suspect there'd be directors' liability responsibilities about their continuation of acting as a director.
0: I think it would also be widespread because so many other people are doing long well now, so, yeah, probably even higher fines.
2: We're going to head off now. Really enjoy the new structure, and the idea yeah. of this is if there are particular parts of what we're talking about, request them and we can actually send you out the individual Yeah, we can extract
1: it for you.
2: And we're really looking forward to it. We're enjoying this enormously and we love having you with us. See you later. Bye-bye. Thanks.
0: Bye.